Hey there, and welcome back to the One with Rob Show. It's great to be with you all again. Uh, my name is Robert, uh, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, and here, uh, back with us in person, Will Stockdale. Will, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. I know uh, you got a chance to talk with uh, the right Reverend Chuck Garriott last week um, and talk to him about the pandemic. So glad to see uh, our fearless leader coming on the pod. I know. I, I couldn't believe that we had not had him on yet. And so I told him maybe uh, maybe quite uh, foolishly that he could uh, come back on whenever he wanted. Uh, I don't know if he'll take us up on that or not, but. Um, well, you give him a foot in the door and he, he'll never I know. leave. Classic Chuck. Oh, um, man. But yeah, we last week we had a great conversation uh, just sort of about the pandemic and, and sort of where things were going. But it almost kind of feels like that that what was sort of becoming the number one news uh, in the country, which was sort of the surging COVID numbers and the Delta variant, that seems to be sort of by the wayside now, uh, because obviously this week, much more pressing, much bigger issues uh, in the news. Will, I know you've been you've been following uh, the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan pretty closely. Yeah, well, um, I, I have been following it more closely than other news events and um you know, it was the writing was on the wall once you started seeing these news articles coming in that uh, provincial capitals were falling one after the other, and every day more and more adding. I, I think there were probably a number of people who th- expected for Kabul to fall, and, and contrary to what was coming out of the White House, uh, they understood that it was probably going to happen quickly. Uh, I think for the vast majority, the amount of time was head spinning. I think it still is kind of head spinning, hard to really um, consider and, and think about. But um, yeah, I, I was listening to an interview with Anthony Blinken, um, Secretary Blinken, and uh, interviewed by Chuck Todd over the weekend and him kind of giving answers for, you know, how to how to respond to this. And um, yeah, and you know, President Biden comes on and says that he doesn't regret any of his decisions and that he's taking full responsibility for what has happened. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I'm curious in one sense. I mean, I know there's different views on whether or not we should be in Afghanistan. Uh, the comparisons to Saigon have been numerous. And in fact, on the Wall Street Journal, it was Monday, I think that the quote they put in was this was Saigon on steroids hmm. and the the images are so similar um, of a helicopter over the embassy in each and Secretary Blinken trying to say that we're setting up a, an embassy at the airport and and Chuck Todd is like wait so there is no embassy and he's like well we have a movable embassy basically and Chuck and kind of leaves it at that being like okay so you're admitting that the embassy has been been evacuated mm-hmm. uh, so but and and thinking of what thinking what Vietnam did to the national conscience and consciousness of how we thought of ourselves, um, that had some some serious repercussions in everything else that was happening in the '60s and obviously it was the the '70s when we pulled out of Saigon. So I, I'm just curious to what this does to us, how it um, affects our foreign policy decisions. Um, what it means for us as Christians, um, as we think of, you know, uh, we can take our reformed heritage and say that women's education has always been strongly advocated. Uh, Martin Luther was 
highly notable for his emphasis on educating young girls and not just having education be for, for men. And so um, that desire for, and look, the Puritans in our own country, that crazy, like early on in America, uh, where the Puritans settled was one of the most literate corners of the world um, because they were like, you have to have children be able to read so they can read the Bible for themselves and know it. So education was very important. Um, and to think that that's something that is going to be lost and, and what that might mean for people who were educated is frightening and sad. And, um, you know, what is, what is the future of missions in that area? Um, what is the future of the church in that area? Um, and as we want to talk about today, uh, what is the role of Christians in response to their civil magistrate? And so, We've talked a little bit about uh, means of grace, and so the preached word, um, sacraments, uh, and um, prayer, and we've also talked a little bit about, um, and we've talked a little about the confession in relation to Mars Hill from a couple weeks ago, but there is a real question uh, among Christians of what is an appropriate um, way for Christians in the church to interact with what what the W Westminster Confession of Faith calls the civil magistrates, what we would call just uh, government. What is our relationship? There's there's different um, views. You have all the way from uh, you you have integralism or uh, Christian nationalism. You also have uh, and I not saying that Anabaptism is 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 uh, in the same moral category as Christian nationalism. Uh, or folk religion, as some would say, but you do have the Anabaptist tradition, which is that look uh, the, of like Stanley Hauerwas saying that the church is its own society and is to be separate from government. So the reformed position that is taken uh, in the Presbyterian tradition is, is somewhat in the middle, I think, of those uh, and allows more freedom of conscience, but is much more supportive and encouraging for uh what, what government is to do. Um, and so, and actually interestingly enough, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but you know, one of the interesting things about the confession of faith is that it was adopted um, and changed for the American context uh, because when it was, when it was written in the 17th, 16, 1640s in, um, in England, uh, there was a much closer, obviously church and state relationship. And so there was there was some uh, an amendment made to the confession in the American context, uh, allowing more distance between the two. But Robert, uh, that's a long-winded introduction to what are your thoughts? And I guess let's go back to Afghanistan maybe a little bit, and then yeah. with the chapter twenty-three of the WCF. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason why I think this conversation about you know what does the what does the Westminster Confession say about the civil magistrate, why it's important today um, is because of what we're watching on the news, particularly with Afghanistan. Uh, our boss, Chuck Garriott, um, uh, has uh, of late been talking about uh, sort of in private meetings within just the ministry about this relationship of uh, Christians in America to its context as a world power. And uh, that's, that's a sort of common theme that you might read in a lot of um, uh, missional theology books. It's something that I find a lot is this sort of like, you know, no matter what you do as an American, 
Um, and even as a, as an, a, a Christian in America, if you go overseas, um, people's sort of first reactions to you is a lot of it's going to be based on what their perceptions of the American military have been just because of its, its presence in so many places since world war II. Um, and so it, in, I think I had a professor that used to kind of say like, as the, uh, as the military goes, sort of goes, you know, America's, uh, 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 perception worldwide. Uh, and that's something Christians in America can't avoid because for better, or for worse, we're, we're citizens of this nation. Um, and so it, it affects things like missions. And so, you know, you brought up the question of what do missions in Afghanistan look like? I mean, that's going to be a very interesting question, um, in the future, because, um, even though there may be many Christians who, uh, disagree with, uh, the policy or the way that the policy was implemented, um, they're going to have a, they're going to have to deal with this consequence, uh, uh, going forward in that nation. And so it's just a, it's just an interesting question. And I think it also brings up, uh, the, the larger sort of macro question, which is what is the church's relation to the state? How do I think about what my nation and its government does um, as a Christian in this, in this state, as a citizen. And um, there are so many political theologies that people can turn to. You mentioned a couple, you know, for example. Um, uh, and so it's important to know as confessional Presbyterians, what does our confession say? Uh, because if we don't, and, and regardless if you agree to it or not, it's important to know that it's there. Um, so we're not swayed uh, one way or the other um, without really knowing, you know, what our forefathers have handed down to us uh, in the confession. Um, and the, the relationship of the church and the state in America has been so, so heavily influenced by um, the debates about anti-establishment uh, in the 18th and 19th or the 18th century and, and early 19th century. Um what does separation of church and state mean? And you, you made a good point. You, you brought up the, the sort of the revision in 1788 of the American uh, adoption of the confession, because what people I think tend to not realize or forget is that the Westminster assembly, the people who are writing the confession are called by parliament. I mean, they are a parliamentarian assembly. Um, and so when we think of that, we we're sort of offended. We're like, well, that's, that's crazy. The government shouldn't be doing stuff like that. Um, and in fact, our, our revision sort of reflects some of those, those ideas. Um, but I think one thing as it relates to how do we think about policies, um, is this idea that, uh, we are not, maybe the, maybe this isn't the right word, but I, I think it's probably the best, more, more accurate description is we are not, um, uh, libertarians or at least the confession is not a libertarian confession. Um, it may be something you know, most people are fine with sort of state power or state function being to suppress evil. Um, so the power of the sword to sort of use force to, you know, prevent things like crime and murder and um, theft and, and stuff like that. Uh, but our, the reform tradition also has a, has a belief that the government should be promoting good or the, the common good. And I think that is really where the debate centers is like, what does that, what does that phrase mean? Um, and it's, it's a lot of, there's so much that's baked into it, but if we, we can't just walk away from it. We have to address that, that part of what, as a part of being reformed means uh, uh, an indicate an, or a, 
an affirmation that the government is to promote the common good. I mean, as, as somebody that's sort of grown up um, in, obviously as someone who's grown up in America and, you know, we both come from Texas, which definitely I think leans a certain way in terms of its sort of political and political theology. Yeah. We won't, we uh, won't tell people what that is. We'll leave that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll leave that. We'll no leave that one open. People can guess. <laughs> um, how is, how is, how have you thought about your relationship as a uh, Christian to the state and has the confession changed that, that view for you at all? Gosh. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed over time. I remember in high school debating with a friend, be like, no, America was founded to be a Christian nation. It was founded as a Christian nation. And my buddy was like, Jefferson was a deist, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, he was right. And I think there's a different question you can ask. You can say, was, was America founded to be a Christian nation or did America have a Christian founding? Uh, those are, those are very different uh, questions. And there's a great book by, well, there's a great book called Did America Have a Christian Founding? And his conclusion is basically, yes. And uh, the, the Apostle Paul is one of the top three most quoted individuals in the letters of the founders. So, so clearly there's, there's a big influence there. We were, there's, there's definitely a separation of church and state. So things have changed in how I've been trying to think about it. And it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of messy. It's not very uh, easy because when I think about um, when the Puritans came in in 1630 to settle here, um, there was a great appreciation for the opportunity to be a city on a hill, to be uh, founding these colonies that were in covenant with each other and with God. So it's covenant with their churches, and then a covenant with God for the 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 colonies that were being established. Um, and then, so interesting enough, over time, the, the second generation of uh, the kids who were raised in this country were not as appreciative of the opportunity that was given them in America and weren't as involved or members of their local churches uh, as their parents were. And so there was this big question of church membership and covenant. So do we allow this second generation to have their kids baptized in the church when they're not members of the church? And so what they compromised with was called a halfway covenant. And so what you see is very early on in the American colonies, this desire and attempt to have something of a national covenant, um, as in men and women have a responsibility to each other before God for promoting the common good, for caring for each other, works for a little bit, but then falls apart very, very quickly. And you get this change in uh, America's politi political theology shifting heavily towards the idea of liberty and liberty in terms of freedom from sin, uh, liberty in terms of freedom from oppression of whatever type. So there, you know, you ask, what is my thought? There's, there's this kind of constant evolution in the American context. Uh, maybe any evolution, I don't want to, because I don't know if it progresses in a certain way, like positively, only that it changes and, and alterations take place over time with how we think of our relationship towards the common good and towards uh, towards God and how we conceive of him. You know, the way that the Puritans thought of God is very different as they were the, the majority people here than how the average American thinks of God and what he desires for us today. So, um, you know, how have I thought about it? it? Where I am now is trying to put these pieces together that is, um, you know, it's just difficult uh, it, and it's, it's not clean. And so to bring it back to the confession, there's such a great 
benefit in having clear, concise answers that you can go to. Basically, the confession is 33 chapters of succinct answers that pretty much allow us to navigate, to carry with us throughout life all the different questions that come up and arise. And, and the relation with the church to civil magistrate is one of them that I think can um, can tether us and can hold us firm um, as we as we go about life, especially in DC, as we minister to people in, in government, what are the boundaries? What are the limitations of what is biblically and theologically acceptable um, for yeah. the church and the state and how they relate to each other? Yeah. The, the Westminster confession, at least the, the version that I have in front of me defines separation of church and state this way. It says um, this is chapter 23, section three, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates, nursing fathers, that's sort of a mixed image right there. Um, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. I guess my question is, there is such a um, almost innate tendency for those two different, um, let's call them spheres, uh, that the confession lays out, the church and the state. There is such an innate temptation, desire, will for I think, you know, people in those spheres to assume the responsibilities of the other. Now, I think um, in historically speaking, the state has has tried to and wanted to sort of encroach into the sphere of the church. Um, think about things uh, like, you know, sort of des uh, deciding what views or what religious views are acceptable or not. That seems to be sort of what people default to or what they think of when they think about this thing. But I also think that there's a sort of related phenomena of uh, people within the church who have been charged the kingdoms of the kingdom of heaven um, to assume a lot of the responsibility or, or want to be doing the work of the state. So I guess my question is, um, where do you see that tendency happening, if at all? And why, does, why is it that that is such a um, temptation for, for folks? The temptation to encroach from one yeah. sphere to the other? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I, part of me thinks that we want a good king. Um, there's this, I'm watching The Crown right now. I'm finally getting into it in the first season when Queen Elizabeth is, is coronated. Uh, her uncle, who, you know, has uh, abdicated the throne. He's talking and the um, the people are like like, this is all craziness, it's these Americans. And he's like, well, it's not crazy at all. I mean, who would want normal when you could have magic? You have the law and religion uh, mixed together so intimately that no lawyer or priest or doctor could could disentangle it. And um, there is this, this desire for some kind of connection, I think, between the two of them. And I think that has to do with uh, a sense of morality in that um, morality is, all morality is teleological. If it is to be an, a, a moral system, it is oriented towards some kind of good. Uh, and if the church and the state are both in always in perfect alignment that we see them, then, you know, 
we're, we're fine. They are, they are not though. They are, they are hardly ever in moving towards the same ends. And so with that, you have a desire for our questions of morality to get involved in one place or another in order to get us on the same trajectory. So I, you, we, you mentioned common good early on, and I think that's, that's really what it, what it's connected to. I think that's, that's a really good answer. I think I, I was sort of thinking when you said about, um, we want a good King. I mean, I think that like, uh, we know that in, in the op, this is using more confession language that, uh, that Christ, uh, uh, holds offices of both, uh, you know, of all three of prophet, priest, and King. Um, but the reality is that only Christ in his sufficiency and his wholeness can, can occupy all those three with the church in, in its current state as being sanctified and looking forward to the, in, in times, um, can't, it can't occupy, um, uh, both, uh, you know, the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven, uh, and, you know, hold the power of the sword. I mean, look at, you know, you know, the abuses of things, um, in Christendom. I think Tom Holland does a really good job in his book, Dominion, of sort of pointing those things out. Um, is that you know when those things are united in the church, it can be it can be destructive, and it can also be you know theocracy, where the state assumes the the role of the church as well, can also be incredibly dangerous. Um, and so, I think uh, the the divines, the Westminster divines, are incredibly prudent and wise here to sort of distinguish those two spheres. But I think it is a temptation uh, of ours. We we just desperately want and look toward the day when those things are united under a good king. Uh, but the reality is that we don't live in those times right now. Um, and so it's better just to probably listen to what the Westminster Divines lay out uh, and follow it, even if it does cause uh, some amount of discomfort or tension. Uh, yeah. Time. And maybe it's helpful. Um, we might look back to the, the 1640s and think, oh, well, it was easy for them to say this. Of course, they were called by parliament. So of course they had a good view. And it's like, no, uh, they were very, the, remember the reason that they were working was because they were very displeased with things and were very concerned about the state of uh, affairs. And so they were hoping to reform the church, to purify it. Uh, no offense to our Anglican brothers and sisters out there. You know, we love you. And uh, we just don't take our theological marching orders from the queen. <laughs> um. The uh, I think this is the, the kind of where I wanted to land this this conversation is as as even though we agree um, about those distinctions between the church and the state, one thing that I think also uh, distinguishes Reformed theology maybe from a more Anabaptist persuasion uh, is actually chapter twenty three section two where it says it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, and you know that definitely flies in the face of um, certain denominations or traditions. I, I have a buddy. Uh, who grew up in a in a denomination uh, in the Midwest that strongly believed that members should not vote, they should not hold public office. Um, so the spheres were that distinct. Um, but one thing that the, the the Westminster Vines point out is that no Christians should be in these places. Um, they should be Christians are called into government uh, in certain times and in particular places, and um, they should go and exercise the duties thereof. And I think that's really important uh, as uh, as a principle. Of reformed, for lack of a better term, political theology, is that you know we are supposed to be in those places, um, and yet we're called to respect uh, the different responsibilities that the Lord has delegated uh, to those two spheres. Because ultimately, 
um, we were talking about this in, in our sermon on Sunday, we were going through, uh, this, the story in Matthew where, um, Christ says, uh, pay to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to give to God's what is God's. And one thing, uh, he pointed out in that sermon, that's, it's also important to remember is that yes, we believe in two distinct spheres between the church and the state, but ultimately we believe both belong to God. Um, and that's what gives us hope ultimately, especially in terms of bad government. Uh, when we see tyrannical government, probably what we're going to see in places like Afghanistan in the near future is that those leaders um, are st- will still be held responsible for the injustices that they commit because the Lord uh, ultimately um, rules over the nations uh, and those nations belong to him. And I think that's really where there is a lot of hope in the confession, uh, and particularly when we see instances of bad government. And I think that's a good a good place to to land this. It's um, it is it is a helpful resource for us to have a helpful guidepost because um, look, all of us are uh, most of us are trying to figure out what is this relationship to look like. What is what is biblically accepted? Can I serve in the military or not? Um, what kind of laws should I be passing? And we talk about um, the common good, and I think one concerning thing for our, our country moving forward is that there's no real agreed upon definition there of what is in common. Um, there is such a thing as common good. That is true. Agreement on what that is, is non-existent at this time. And uh, we have a lot of work to do as the church of, uh, and maybe we'll follow up with this next week. I think there's probably a lot more that we could do here. We've, we've really done something of a glancing blow, scratching the surface of this, but coming to an understanding of what is the common good that we can present to people to share with them, to tell them that this is the message of Jesus and why it's good. And, um, uh, and that doesn't mean that it will, we're not going to flick the, the wand and everything's going to be better, but it, it will hopefully be helpful for moving forward. I agree. That's awesome. Um, well, it is great to have you back. I did miss you last week. It's just this, this, this podcast is just not the same when you're not here. I, I can't, I can't imagine what it was like. I can't imagine my non-existence within this podcast. We were stumbling along. I'll tell you that. Um, oh, Gosh, uh, yeah, it's but, good to be back with you too, Robert. Although I will say, um, you didn't call me my very good friend uh, at the beginning. Oh, I'm of sorry. This podcast. No, it's fine. We should land the plane though. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Artie Hassler, <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter at Stockdale Will. I'm looking for new friends, so if you anyone is interested in hanging out, you should follow him. He's my very good friend, and I would I would recommend anything he says. He you did actually just I did want to did pl- I did want to plug this real quick. Um, speaking of the confession. Because we, you just wrote, I think, what's probably the best devotional ministry the state has put out in the last 18 months um, about uh, Mount, the God of Mount Sinai now being revealed in Jesus Christ, uh, which I would recommend everybody who listens to this podcast to go check out. You can see it on our uh, website, um, and, uh, or if you follow Ministry of State on Twitter or Facebook, you can find it there. It, it really was absolutely fabulous um, and something that I shared with a lot of friends privately uh, because it was so good. Um, well, that's great. Uh, Of course, dude. Uh, And with that, I guess we'll see you guys again next week.